uncommon sense advice on your work life, your personal life, and God knows what else. Welcome to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. Even in this age in which being single is maybe even more revered in many circles than being married, tied down, knotted, hooked up, chained, there really can be a case for coupling. And I'm going to lead with that, but then we're going to make the case for what I call solohood, singlehood. Spending most of your time solo, living solo, being solo. Then I'm going to talk about whether you think in your situation you should stay in your current relationship if you have one. I'll be giving you a relationship report card to rate yourself and mainly your partner about. And if you want to meet someone, how can you make the most of serendipity? How can you make the most of online dating? How can you make the most of setups, in-person courses, volunteering? So we've got a full half hour here, and so let's get started. I think maybe the best way to make the case for coupling is to just describe a day in life. If you get up in the morning, who knows, you may have sex in the morning and not a bad way to start the day. You may share breakfast, hopes for the day, the events of the day, even if it's very mundane stuff like talking about the upcoming meeting or that the breakfast was good or thanking your spouse for making it can feel good. Now, of course, sometimes it's not always that way. For example, if your kids are driving you nuts, I don't want to eat that breakfast. I don't want it. I want something else. But that can often start the day feeling good. And then during the day, sometimes you call in the middle of the day find out how your partner is. It can feel good, a way to connect even during the day. Who knows, maybe even have a nooner. When you get home and you can talk about your, your day and enjoy dinner together, with family potentially. With, with and I'm well aware that it's not always like this, but though we're talking about the kind of the good sides of, of being a couple. You may do some stuff separately for part of the evening. One of you might want to work, one of you might want to read, watch TV, play video games, whatever, or you might do things together. And on the weekends, plenty of time to do things together by yourselves. Little day trips, getting together with another couple, going out to dinner, inviting another couple to dinner. Or as my wife and I love to do, we, we sit in a, in a little family room and with our dog in between us and watch you know, great movies. And, TV shows and Netflix and all the rest of it. And then you go to bed. I'm not implying that sex is constant three or times a day, but there are many opportunities for that potentially most rewarding of activities. And, and of course, then there's the practical. You get to live under one roof and share life's expenses. There's the shared history of growing old with someone. And yes, half a couple's divorced, but half don't. And at least some of those half really are grateful to be married, grateful to have kids. Some people say their marriage and their children is the most important thing in their lives. So that's the case for coupling. How about the case for singlehood? Being a couple is about compromise. It's about sacrifice of freedom. You, if you're a decent spouse, or even forget about whether you're married, you know, live in lover or whatever, you give up huge freedom. Everything from potentially when to get up to when to go to bed, what temperature to keep the room, what activities you're going to do, where you're going to go out to eat, what movies, who you're going to befriend, 
keep the house as clean as you want or not clean as you want without getting nagged. Freedom is very powerful. And given the high divorce rate and that many couples stay together mainly for the kids or out of inertia because it's so psychologically painful and often financially costful to, costly to get divorced or simply to break up psychologically. So many couples schlep along for an awful long time and in their heart of hearts they know they'd be better off single. So there really is a case for solohood, for living singly, perhaps dating casually, but having your own life, basically. The larger question is, should you be solo, at least at this point in your life? First, you might want to consider your track record. How well have you done in the so-called meat, M-E-E-T, market? Are you more likely or less likely now to meet a good romantic partner? Is it worth the effort? How unhappy are you currently solo? What about the opportunity cost? Which is what you'd be missing if you were with a, a partner or with you were alone. So in other words, if you were staying solo, you would have more time to do X, Y, or Z, but you wouldn't have the time with a couple. So you have to weigh the time that you'd have for yourself versus the quality of the time net you'd have with a partner. And also weighing the realities. You know, there are very few couples that are made in heaven and stay made in heaven. They come down to earth, unfortunately, fairly quickly after the infatuation stage. What do you like after that infatuation stage? Is that something you want or do you like the ups and downs of short-term relationships? And of course there's disease. You know, there's greater risk of disease when you're out and about. Let's now turn to if you're in a current relationship and how to assess whether you should stay or go. There are about five factors that I believe that everybody should judge themselves and judge their partner on in helping to decide whether you stay together. And I'm not going to say everybody, you've got to have at least a B on all these or whatever, but it may help you assess the relationship relative to your own potential to meet somebody better. So let's look at these, these factors. First, is, let's start with sexual compatibility. It doesn't matter whether you and he have a high sex drive or not. It matters that your sex drive is matched. If you would like to have sex five times a week and he'd like to have it three times a day, not very good. And it's even worse if one partner would like it at um, kind of the average three times a week and the other would just as soon forget about sex. Got to rate your sex life based on that. Frequency is perhaps the most important thing and the most difficult to, to fix. We can talk about technique or whatever. That's a little easier to fix. But in terms of rating your relationship, in, in terms of its sexuality, most important is, is your physiological and otherwise other you know, environmentally based desire, general level of desire, compatible? 
You want high with high, medium with medium, low with low to it. And, and the, the little things about technique or timing or whatever, those usually can be negotiated. So give yourself, give your relationship a letter grade for that. Now let's talk about the out-of-bed relationship. You spend much more time out of bed than in, except in the very beginning usually. So think about when you do have breakfast or dinner or are walking down the street or co-parenting. How compatible are you? Do you respect each other? Do you like listening to what they have to say? Do you like asking them questions? Laughing seems to be very important for many people. Do you laugh together? Are you comfortable together out of bed? Is it, is it comfy? Rate your relationship on that. I think especially important in these trying times is that both parties need to be able to contribute significantly to, to family income. It's really hard, especially in the Bay Area, to live on one income, even if you're a doctor, let alone a person with a more average salary. So are, are both of you contributing, not to be exactly equally, but each of you contributing significantly? And beware, very often one partner says that he or she would like to continue working and then after they get married there's always a reason why a year or something later the person says, no, I think I'd like to stay home. That could be very dangerous and can tear a relationship apart because putting all of the burden on one person to bring home all the income is really stressful and typically requires the person to do a job that he wouldn't otherwise do except for the need to be that beast of burden and bring in all that money. A main reason that, that employers pay so much money uh, is because the job is very difficult or the job is bringing in huge amounts of money like a you know, bond investment banker or a bond trailer or trader or whatever. And that may not be what you really want to do, but if your partner says, you got to bring home the 200 grand, even though you might rather have a job that's either more laid back or more creative or less materialistic or non-profit, you may feel this obligation to do that job. So it's really pretty important that both of you uh, contribute income in most cases. And a, a, an ancillary point is that both of you have a similar view about spending and saving. If one of you is a big spender, on, especially on expensive items, designer label clothes or designer label college, uh, and the other is more of a saver and more, more practical, that could lead, I, I believe I read a study years ago that said that couples fight more about money than anything else. So that's something you need to rate your, your relationship on in terms of compatibility around money issues. Then there is what I call the fatal flaw question. You can be, you can rate the relationship high on all those factors, but if one of you has what I call the fatal flaw, it's really hard to justify it being in that relationship. If somebody has a really incorrigible anger problem or depression or, frankly, a really serious physical illness, it is really, it's, it, it's a serious issue in terms of deciding whether that relationship should be continued. And there is no answer, right answer. I mean, emotionally it feels great, you know, God forbid, you know, they say when you get married, you know, richer for poorer, in sickness and in health and somebody gets a serious disease, and it can feel very virtuous to stay with that person until the end. But it also an argument can be made for saying, you know, 
unfortunately this person is dying but it doesn't mean I have to die too and um, I am not judgmental about somebody who would you know I, I knew somebody who had MS and uh, he had years to live but pretty much bedridden and uh, very non increasingly non-functional but he was not going to die soon and she divorced him my visceral reaction was how could she but there you know one could say that you know and that's what she said she says he's going to die but I'm still in the prime of my life do I really want to spend the rest of my life as a nursemaid or the next 10 years so she divorced him so I'm not judgmental either way about it and then the final factor on the relationship report card is the magical thing not something you can quantify or rate but when a couple is really good together for the long term they simply feel good being around each other they may not even be talking with each other they may be in the same room doing parallel activities but it feels good or when the phone rings and it's them even after a number of years they feel glad it's the other person they may or may not think more about the other person than about themselves but they do think a lot about what's going to make the other person happy they're not as selfish as many people tend to be there they love that person and so they're quite generous with their time their money their caring their willingness to self-sacrifice so that's a relationship report card that may help you decide whether you want to stay with the person or not uh, when we come back we're going to talk about if you'd like to meet someone you know what are some of the best ways to use serendipity online dating getting set up in-person courses and volunteering stay with me would you you're listening to How to Do Life with career and personal coach, Dr. Marty Nemco. If you'd like to work with him, email him a description of your situation, mnemco at comcast.net. That's M-N-E-M-K-O at comcast.net. Marty is pleased if you choose to subscribe to this podcast. If you're not listening to this on Simplecast, just go to how-to-life.simplecast and click on listen and subscribe. Thank you for staying with me. So we're talking about relationships, trying to be even-handed in the virtues of solohood versus being a couple. But now we're going to turn to, if you would like to meet someone, making the most of serendipity and other methods of meeting somebody is key because the same method utilized well can make a big, big difference compared with somebody who uses uh, the same method but doesn't do it as well there are many people who still believe in the best way to meet people is the organic serendipitous way like we see in the movies two people are going down the street and not looking and they bump into each other and it's kismet it's perfect and they live happily ever after uh, that can work it's not my favorite method but the key to it working is to not just rely on the physical attractiveness how sexy that person is to you but they say especially as you get older you wear your personality on your face and they say the eyes are the windows to the soul even if you're wearing a COVID mask you can see the eyes or this the lines on the side more of the smile kind of lines or the dour serious person or the deep lines in the middle suggest the person's a worrier if the the side of the mouth 
are slightly curled up, it means that the person's default is to smiling, being upbeat. If the side of a person's mouth angles down, it suggests that they're sad or angry a lot of the time. Not that any of these things are sure, but it's a, you know, it's an indicator. And of course, there is the looks thing. You know, some people care a lot about somebody who's dressed, you know, for success, dressed traditionally and beautifully. Other people like somebody who's much more casual. So try to judge the whole thing, and that increases your chances of it working. But most important is, it's it is very hard to you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. But try to not let that first initial impression where somebody says, oh, that person seems great, create what's called confirmation bias. That is, looking only for things that confirm that positive opinion. Try to really stay open to the negatives. They may be cute, but they may be a bad boy or a bad girl. Is that really what you want? They may be cute, but they may be selfish, too selfish. We're all somewhat selfish. They may be cute, but they may be unemployed. Is that really what you want? They may be cute, but they may have a drug problem. They may be cute and may be depressed. So try to, even early on in a relationship, to use those criteria that I mentioned in the uh, relationship report card. And by the way, yeah, substance abuse is another one of those uh, potentially fatal flaws. It's not easy to try to change somebody. And if you think you're going to be with somebody who's got a mental issue or a substance abuse problem, going into a thing, well, I'm so loving, I'm so great, I'll change them. It's a pretty risky proposition. So those are some thoughts about making the most of serendipity. Now I want to talk a little bit about online dating. I have helped many of my clients find somebody with online dating. And some of the more valid things we've, we've learned is it's far better for you to be doing the reaching out than wait for people to reach out to you. Because that way you're picking out the people who are most compatible with you rather than saying, oh, I should respond to this person, it seems okay. Second is your photos. Too many photos, it's obvious that, you know, photos that are deceptive, that are very old, that are grainy, and then you meet the person in person and, or on a Zoom, and you see that they're very different. Well, that just establishes you a dishonest right up front. So, Obviously, you want some authentic pictures. But maybe uh, as important is I've found that the professionally taken photos tend to look phony. You know, when I see a, a professional background and the person's got their head in their in their um, uh, in their palm in their uh, their head in their palm of their hand, or they've got the head in that tilt, the sexy tilt, it tends to seem too contrived. The best photos are, yes, head and shoulder shots in which you are looking straight in the camera with your most authentic natural smile. And if you don't have a smile you particularly like, you might do. You might look in the mirror and look for, try out a few smiles, and which is the one that you think is most legitimately you and that you would like to portray. And yes, it's generally, generally good to have three, four pictures. Ten may be a bit much, it shows you're a little desperate, but having um, a picture, perhaps head and shoulders, as I said. And you should be wearing the kind of outfit that you like and feel great about, but also that would attract your Mr. or Ms. Wright. You might have three pictures, one head and shoulders, one a full body shot that does show your body, wearing a casual outfit that you would enjoy wearing, and one where you're dressed up. Don't have pictures of you and former 
romantic partners. If you're a dog lover, okay, include a dog in one, but not the romantic partners. Importantly, your profile. Your profile should not say the obvious. The purpose is not to get as many responses as possible. The purpose is to get, to filter through the zillions of people whose profiles are on Match.com or whatever, to find the few that are particularly good fits. So you want to talk about the things that are quintessentially you that might turn off a lot of people, but not everybody. For example, I've been married for a million years, but if I were single, I would have an online profile, and I would talk about the fact that I work 60 or more hours every week. The woman, right woman for me, is going to accept that and maybe even embrace that. And it's going to screen out lots of the wrong women, which is exactly what I want to try to do on Match.com. I want to make clear that I am not laid back, I'm rather intense. So you see, I'm talking about the negatives that would screen out lots of people but leave in the potentially right people. I'm not materialistic at all. I'm not a big spender. I don't believe in spending much. I like simple pleasures. I would make that clear. Again, you can see I'm not going to get a lot of responses. But I might get one, two, or five that are on target. Don't make it too short because it seems like you don't care enough. And don't make it too long. Your normal profiles should be 100 words, something like that. What else? Another thing is, because there are so many fish in the sea, when you have found somebody you like, um, or at least whose profile you like, um, and you send them a, an email that briefly explains what you liked about them, don't get too sexual early. That's not good. But what you liked about them, and a little more about yourself that isn't in the profile that would be potentially compatible with that person. So, for example, if that person mentions that uh, that she likes uh, growing tomatoes, you could say that you grew tomatoes and your dad grew tomatoes until right before he died or whatever. So it's a little human, it's a little relational, not too intimate, but it just deepens things a little. I would be, I, the person gets a point if they respond somewhere between a few hours and a day. That says that they're not desperately sitting there waiting to meet somebody but they're, they're interested enough that they're going to respond within a day. If they don't respond within a day, of course, they could be perfect, they could be busy, whatever. But generally, it's, it's a minus. It's not a great sign. You know, I, I am also, please, amid all this rationality, don't, I'm not ignoring the power of pictures. You've got to judge and ask, is this a person you could see being with? And if you're like most people, you're not trying to just get together for a one-night stand. You're trying to get to for a relationship. You know, could you see walking down the street proudly with this person, introducing this person to your friends, to your parents? Could you be seeing? Could you see yourself being sexually attracted to that person? Very important. All right, let's talk about getting set up. Many people are reluctant to ask to get set up because they're afraid it's going to appear you're going to appear desperate. But asking your friends to set you up is usually a really good part of a uh, search for a romantic partner because your friends know you well and they're pre-screening. Sometimes on dating websites, you're getting a very not fair-minded perspective of a person. And they could be less, a lot less than they appear on the internet. Whereas your friends are going to pre-screen. They're not going to set you up with Jack the Ripper, son of Sam, uh, Edie Amin. So, but the key is in how you make the ask. Again, give them a little specificity, but not so much that it eliminates everybody. 
So say, for example, I tend to like people who are uh, uh, a little more serious, who, are, who have you know, a, a job that they really care a lot about, and what I care about is quality time, and I, I, I like guys of this particular body type, for example. So that's just an, enough to give them something to work with. And, or if kindness is everything, or humor is everything, um, say that. And then when they say, I, you know, I don't have, I can't think of anybody, it's pretty likely that they won't have anybody for you at that moment. But then ask the magic question, would you mind keeping your ears open? And if in a month I'm still looking, would you mind if I circle back? And they'll always say yes to that, and that recruits a scout. All right, now I want to turn to courses, which I think are a great place to meet people. Think of the course you would like to take, whether or not you meet somebody, but that your Mr. or Ms. Wright would also be taking that course. Take the course, even if it's a virtual course, because the kind of ongoing interaction you get in a course that meets three, five, ten times or a semester gives you a chance to build a relationship slowly. And very often before the course starts, even if it is virtual, you, there's chatting that goes on in the Zoom meeting, or certainly if it's an in-person class, you know, go up to the person or at least stay in their line of vision and maybe they'll come to you and see, you know, how they score on some version of the relationship report card. It's a really nice way to meet people who are compatible. And finally, volunteering. Great place to meet people. Again, people of your particular uh, politics and values. So volunteer for an organization. You know, it could be a conservative one, like a Catholic charity, or a liberal one, like a Biden for president. And volunteer, especially volunteer, not licking envelopes in your home, but if there is a, a way to volunteer in a way in which you meet people, that could be a great way to meet kindred spirits. And people who volunteer are generous of spirit, generally tend to be good people. In any event, those are my thoughts on the pros and cons of singlehood, and if you would like to meet people, my thoughts on how to uh, maximize each of serendipity, online dating, setups, in-person courses, and volunteering. And so now, as I like to end every show, I, this is Marty Nemco reminding you that we find comfort among those who agree with us, growth among those who don't. You've been listening to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. For comments on the show or to consult with Dr. Marty Nemco, his email address is mnemko at comcast.net. Post-production of How to Do Life by Terry Rouse. Music by Blue Dot Session. Thanks for listening.